Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Amen. You guys were singing this morning. Woo. Hallelujah. I love that. I love that. Hope you were singing at home, too. Hope the neighbors heard you. Wouldn't it be fun if people at home were cranking church service so loud and singing so loud that neighbors called the cops on them because there's some kind of weird noises coming out of their house? That'd be awesome. So last week, we started in a series on the Holy Spirit entitled The Third, and he is the third person of the Trinity whom we absolutely believe to be one God whom has chosen to express himself in three distinct personalities. Uh, the Godhead three in one, we sing that. The Godhead three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb. You guys know the song, right? How great is our God. But better be careful, we'll break into worship again with you guys this morning. <laughs> well, we sing that, right? And we sing maybe an older one is God in three persons. We sing these things, we believe them. Biblically, we see, we see the Trinity in Genesis 1.26, where he says, let us make man in our own image, which is an interesting way to say it. But I think God was showing us there that he is one entity, but three distinct personalities. We also see that uh, uh, scripturally in Matthew 3.16 through 17, I didn't bring this one out last week, but it's the baptism of Jesus. And after he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and settling on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so you have all three members of the Trinity in one spot there. You see the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, Jesus. He's right there in the water, comes up out of the water with John the baptizer. And then we see the, the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon him. And then we hear the voice of God speak, This is my Son. One God, three distinct parts. I say all this so that you will understand that the Holy Spirit is God. He is God. He is the Holy Spirit of Christ. And we began in Genesis last week, and we really didn't get past Genesis 1-2. Um, we talked about the, uh, what the Holy Spirit was doing during creation and we know that the Father spoke things into existence, and we know that, that Jesus was the very word that he spoke, and that he is the word of God personified. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus. Look at him and say, Jesus. Even if you're at home, do it again. Say, Jesus. By the way, you can't say that name enough. <laughs> Jesus, now say this, is the word of God personified. The word became flesh, you don't have to say that anymore. You're, we're done with that part. But the Word became flesh, and His name was Jesus. The Word of God is, is Jesus is the Word of God personified. So that's important to understand and know and, and filter all of our beliefs through those basic Christian doctrines that we don't always talk about because sometimes doctrinal things are boring, but they're important. Because as generations go by, we forget those things. And we don't have a foundation to build other truths that need to be built on those foundations. So important to talk about these things. We know that uh, the Father spoke things into existence. We know that Jesus was the very word that he spoke. 
And I talked about how the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, and that hovering presence of the Holy Spirit was intended to preserve and prepare. It was preserving and preparing the raw materials that God had already created until he spoke all things into existence. What he had created didn't have order, so the, the Holy Spirit was, was over it. And, and it didn't have order, not because God messed up, because he wasn't done creating yet. And then he brought order to it by putting the stars and the, and the sun and the moon and, and, and the waters and separated with the land and then vegetation and, of course, all the way to us being created. I also related that hovering presence that we talked about to us today because God, with his Spirit, still preserves and protects us as God molds us into his own masterpieces we are essentially all masterpieces in progress. I, 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 just think about that a second. You are a masterpiece in progress. Have you ever seen anybody work with stone or work with clay? Somebody who takes a lot of time to do what they do. I mean, I, I like the, the picture of stone because I think most of us are probably a little more hard than pliable clay. And God gets out his tools and he just chips and he chisels and he rubs and he, and he smooths and he, he does all those things. We are a masterpiece in progress. And, you know, I'm not going to make this whole morning about saying things, but I want you to look up this morning, and I'm, I'm not doing this to see how compliant you are, by the way, but look up to heaven. Everybody look up to heaven. And just say in your own words, thank you, God, for making me a masterpiece in progress I am your masterpiece I am the work of your hands that's an awesome thought that's a really awesome thought if you can get it deep down in your soul you are masterpieces in progress but before we go any further into the subject of the Holy Spirit I really do want to take some time today and this is going to be a different message probably different than I've ever preached before I spent a lot of time studying things that uh have you ever gotten to the Bible and found rabbit holes? And the further you go, the deeper it is. And you can't get to the end of it. And you really can't get the answer because it's just too, it's just too much. I, I don't know if you've experienced that, but it's fun. It's taxing. This has been a week of, of doing that very thing. And I, I want to build some framework for some of the... And the reason we need to build a framework is we're going to continue to talk about the Holy Spirit, not just in the series, but throughout the year. And I, I think it's so important that we say things right. So I, I want to build a framework for some of the popular church phrases that we hear and even use ourselves sometimes in reference to the Holy Spirit. And I want to say this. When choosing our adjectives for describing the nature of the Holy Spirit, we have to be careful as not to confuse people. We need to be careful not to confuse people. We also need to not get caught up in the paralysis of analysis where you can drive yourself crazy trying to wrap your head around all that the Holy Spirit is and using the perfect verbiage to talk about him. I experienced both this week. <laughs> caught in the paralysis of the analysis and, and maybe realizing that, that sometimes even in my verbiage, I don't, I don't speak it exactly like it should be spoken. That's what study is for. And I think... There are some words or phrases that are just thrown around the church world when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to address all of these this morning, but I want to throw up a few of them out because this is, this is it's interesting to me. 
We hear the phrase, the presence of the Holy Spirit. I feel his presence. I sense his presence. Grieving the Holy Spirit. We hear that phrase, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I've heard that one a lot. The baptism in the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the immersion in the Holy Spirit, the moving of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. The fruits of the Holy Spirit, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon. I could go on and on and on. There is a lot of language in the Word of God. There's a lot of language within the church that we need to understand what we're saying when we say it. Nod your head if you get what I'm talking about, okay? And it's, it's no wonder that there's so much confusion within people when it comes to discussing the third person of the Trinity. I mean... It, isn't it just like the enemy? The very part of God that has been given to us for the purpose for leading, teaching, and guiding us into all truth is surrounded by confusion. And understand, he's not brought confusion. The Holy Spirit never does that. The enemy does because the enemy knows that if we ever get a hold of even a little truth of the power of the Holy Spirit and how to tap into and walk in that power, that it would not only completely transform us as individuals, but we would become serious threats to the enemy himself. We would be threats to him. And isn't it time, church, that we start threatening the devil? rather than sitting back and seeing what he's going to throw at us next. I'm not wired that way. I'm not wired in a way that says, okay, i got to play defense here. Let's, let's, you know, like a goalie, you know, trying to block the shots. I'm just not wired that way. I want to be the guy shooting. Understand what I'm saying? And I know we have to play goalie sometimes. We have to play deflector. We have to play defense sometimes i get that but 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 really sometimes the best defense is to get the devil running in the other way it's it's to have a very strong offense i don't know why i'm talking about that it's not like it's super bowl sunday or anything <laughs> but it's time that instead of sitting back and seeing what he's going to throw at us next and going, oh, I hope he doesn't, hope he doesn't attack, hope he doesn't attack, that we, we turn that around. And the, understand, the church has been given all the tools we need. I'm not talking about going after the devil ourselves. But we have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. We have to understand that the, who the Holy Spirit is and all that he's given us. And, and when we do that, it's, it's the beginning of us recognizing and using those tools he's given us to put the devil on the run. So first of all, I'll say this again, he is God, right? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But you have to realize that there are pivotal moments throughout history, and you throw that graphic up if you would, pivotal moments throughout history that we must not ignore if we are going to truly understand what we believe and why we believe it. Especially as we study the third person of the Trinity, we need to understand how God dealt with his people in reference to these pivotal moments throughout time and how he deals and relates to us today. And I threw a couple pivotal moments up there. We're going to talk about them and reference this a lot this morning. So I just want you to follow along and I, I'm going to ask questions today. And I'm not necessarily going to give you all the answers. Is that okay? Guess what? It's not my job to give you the answers. But some of you don't even ask questions. It's good to ask questions because it will drive you deeper into the Word of God. 
And if I can get your mind kind of going, if I can start a conversation within your home, amongst your friends and, and whatever, in reference to the Holy Spirit and who he is, and it's driving you deeper into the word of God, I just did my job. Understand? Not all these things are necessarily, not all these things necessarily have an answer to them. But I want to give you some of these pivotal moments and how God deals with his people differently. I know Leslie's been in on some of this stuff talking about covenants on Wednesday night. It's been wonderful. If you've been there, if you haven't, you can catch it on YouTube. But, but some of this plays right in together in the different covenants that God makes with man. But I want to give you an example. Creation was a pivotal moment. God has always existed. Then he created humanity to love and worship him at the point of creation. But he gave them a choice as to whether they would love him or not. That's called free will, by the way. Aren't you happy for free will? God has not made you a puppet, right? He didn't force you to worship him. He gave you the choice, and you're here today because you've chosen him, because you want to worship him. And that brings glory to him because he made you with a choice, and you chose him over the world. It's pretty awesome. That's why he loves you so much. You bring his name glory. That's a cool thing. And this was a pivotal moment in history for sure, this creation, because if God hadn't created, none of us would exist. I mean, we wouldn't even be talking here today. It was pivotal. God and Adam and Eve had a wonderful relationship with each other. It was paradise. It was perfection. They had fellowship with him. They were in constant, unbroken relationship with him. They had communion with him. Not, not bread and wine, but they had communion with him, relationship. They communed with him. And if you look at, close at the word communion, it's not hard to see the word, not hard to see the word community. It, 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 it's so close to that word. Community. And how, what, what does everybody want today? They want a sense of community, right? A sense of belonging, a sense of community. Adam and Eve had that in the garden. They had it with God. That relationship was wonderful. It was perfect. It was what God intended. Then came the fall of mankind. Basically, Adam and Eve, is this thing just toasting out? Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna take this off. I need help again. Lord, get me a new mic. Is that better? So we had Adam and Eve with this great relationship. Then came the fall of mankind. Basically, Adam and Eve were disobedient to what God had set up as a standard. He said, don't eat the fruit, and they chose to eat it anyway. You guys know the story. This was a pivotal moment, though, and I want to point this out. Pivotal because it changed the nature of humanity's relationship with God. No longer would they have community and fellowship with him like they had enjoyed before. It wasn't like they... They could be in the garden in that perfect communion anymore. That was that creation. That's what God first intended. They walked with him. They spent time with him. They were with him. They communed. They had fellowship. They had a relationship. And then the fall of man separated. The sin separated. They ate the fruit, which some people say was an apple, but I don't think that's scriptural necessarily, even though I put an apple up there. So you can send me evil mail saying, I don't think it was the apple, but that wasn't the point. So... <laughs> 
It changed the nature of humanity's relationship with God. The fall did when they sinned. No longer would they have community and fellowship with him like they enjoyed. They would have to have faith, and that faith would be accredited to them as righteousness. And then, understand, in, in the Old Testament, the focus is primarily on God the Father and how he related to his people before and after the fall of man. I mean, the pivotal moments, parts of God, okay, his three in one, that's why Trinity is so important here, how he dealt in those three parts with these pivotal moments changes as those pivotal moments happen. And understand that God does not change, but he deals with his people differently. He deals with his people differently during those pivotal changes and when those pivotal changes happen. In the Old Testament, God was primarily the focus. In the church age, who's primarily the focus? The Holy Spirit, really. The Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus, so you could say Jesus too in a way. But the Holy Spirit is primarily the focus in the church age. We talked about hovering last week, and this was before and during creation. And if you remember, I gave you the Hebrew word ruach. Okay, you got to say that one now. Ruach. It's two weeks in a row. Ruach. The uh, original Hebrew scripture there. That, that's the actual word that Moses wrote down when he wrote Genesis, when God gave him Genesis and he wrote it down. And we translate it spirit. Follow me here. The very next time this word is used in Genesis, in the original Hebrew text, it's translated into the phrase in the cool. In the cool. This is per or peculiar to me. Why not translate it into the same word as they did before? Spirit. But they didn't. This word ruach is used last week and they translated it spirit. This, this week in Genesis 3 8, we see it translated in the cool. And there's a reason for that. So, so many aspects. There are so many aspects to this word that the English language can't capture its meaning with just one or two words. So instead of trying to do that and falling miserably short, it's important to bring the writer's true intention and meaning forward. Let's, let's read Genesis 3, 8. Now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the cool is ruach, ruach. It's fun to say. And clear your throat while you're talking. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So this is God walking in the garden in the cool, which refers to the afternoon winds that bring a welcoming refreshing to us. They gently blow across and cool us. And I, whenever I read this in the Bible, I begin to relate the Holy Spirit of God to when I was working on the farm as a teenager. It's amazing how many things you can relate back to the farm. And we would pick rock out in the fields. Picking rock is one of the worst jobs known to mankind. You sit on a wagon, the tractor's going, the wagon's behind the tractor, and you don't have to do that as much here as we did up north, because up north there's rocks all over the fields, and if they get caught in the combine, it's a bad deal. So we picked up the rocks at the beginning of the planting season every single year, and the frost is so bad, it pulls them up from way below. And every year there's new rocks. You never get done picking rock. Sometimes I thought these fields are growing rocks, not crops, okay? And here, I, I move here, and people pay for rocks. We just pile them up at the end of every grove. 
If you could figure out a way to transport those and sell them here, wow, that would be a good business plan, but I don't know if that's possible. Somebody would have figured it out already. But you sit behind this, on this wagon, behind the tractor, the tractor's kicking up dirt that's hot, it's, it's sweaty, it's humid. It's hard to imagine that now with the temp today. And the dirt's hitting you and it's sticking to your sweat and getting in every crack and crevice that you have. I'll just say it that way. And your face gets dried out because, because of the heat and the sun and you feel a little burnt and you're, you're starting in the morning like 7 a.m. and you, you have a lunch break and that's great, but then you go on in the afternoon, probably starting at one and you, and, and you just can't wait till three o'clock. This is, this is my memory. Three o'clock every day we would take a 15 minute break. And most of the time we would be near some creek or, or a grove that had plenty of shade. So we would wipe the dirt and muck from our faces, take out our water coolers, because they weren't bottles or they, they were coolers because you needed that much water. You were sweating it out so fast. And you drink that ice cold water and we would sit under a shade tree and the gentle breeze in summer would come over us and bring a refreshing. I mean, sitting in the shade and in that, in that situation, it's 15 degrees cooler, at least in the shade. And you're sitting there and you're just, you're just wrecked from the heat, wrecked from the work, you're tired, it's three o'clock, you're taking a break. And you just sit there under that shade tree and let the breeze cool you off and refresh you. It was energizing, it was relaxing, and it was always the best part of the afternoon. This is how scripture is portraying God here. And again, it uses ruach, but here this word is translated in the cool. And this is so that we get a better understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. He brings refreshing, church. He brings an energizing uh, to us. He, he's relaxing. He brings a relaxing, uh, just, just feeling to us. He's, it's peaceful, cool breeze to our souls. Uh, spiritually speaking, of course. That's what he does for us. And understand that Adam and Eve had just sinned. They were feeling guilt and shame for the first time ever. They'd never felt what it felt like to feel guilty, but they were feeling it. They felt ashamed, and they hid themselves when they heard God. They hid themselves. I mean, I, we often have this picture of God like when we mess up, he is going to step on our throats until we repent. I call it the, the, the big angry kid in the sky with a magnifying glass, and we're ants. And he's just waiting to crush us or, or take us out if we blow it. Can I say something? You've already blown it at some time since you've been saved. You maybe blew it today already. And you're probably going to blow it tomorrow or the next day in some way. God does not hate you. Understand, I love how it pictures God as a cool, gentle breeze of relaxing rather than the, the wrath of God came down upon them and he kicked them out of the garden. It wasn't like that. It was this gentle, cool, relaxing breeze, like he was wooing them back to him. And he does the same thing for you and I. We mess up. We step away from him and his presence because of our sin. And, 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 and understand, we step away from him and, and push him away a little bit. Not that he doesn't pursue us and love us and ever stop loving us, but then he woos us with that gentle breeze of the Spirit, that presence, that cool breeze in the cool, and he brings us back. He reels us in. That's the God we serve. That's the God we serve. 
Now, if we walk in rebellion and choose to turn our backs on God and say, enough's enough, I don't want any part of you anymore, and we walk away and, and, and we, we reject him in our rebellion after we've accepted him, you know, you're going you're gonna to have to figure that out for yourself as far as how thin is the ice get before, before you lose your salvation because I wholly and fully believe that you can lose your salvation. Not because of what God doesn't do or does because he's always going to be there for you. The, the Bible says uh, nobody can pluck you out of the Father's hand. That means Satan, that means anybody else. But you can choose to jump out of his hand because you still got free will. I'm not a once saved, always saved guy. And I know that gets semantical sometimes, and some people get confused by that, but I believe you can walk away if you choose to. And some people say, well, then you were never saved to begin with if you chose to walk away, because if you taste and see the Lord is good, then I know all the arguments. And it could be just semantics, but there's whole piles of, of, of people in the, in, the, in the church that separate denominationally because of those types of issues. All right. It should be said also that this presence that they were experiencing in the garden after they had sinned, where they were hiding, and in the God comes walking, and his spirit, like a cool breeze, is there, a refreshing breeze, ruach. It should be said that, that this is God's manifest presence. That was his manifest presence. When people use this word to describe his presence, what do they mean? We hear it regularly probably in the church. I've heard it a million times, especially when people start talking about revival, the manifest presence. Manifest presence by a, a very technical definition would be this, a clear or obvious, uh, it's clear or obvious to the eye. That is manifest presence. Clear or obvious to the eye. So is the presence of the Holy Spirit manifest? Is it clear and obvious to the eye? That would be the question. The physical eye. And Adam and Eve saw his presence right there in the garden, and they hid from it. And we certainly see many examples of his manifest presence throughout the Old Testament. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire that the Israelites followed in the desert. Those were all manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, manifest presence of God. The burning bush that Moses experienced was the manifest presence of God behind the veil within the tabernacle where no man was to go except for the high priest. And he could only go once a year after he had made sacrifices and offerings. God's presence was, was visible back there. It was manifest. God's presence was visible in the Old Testament many, many times. His presence was manifest, a manifest presence. Today we are past the pivotal moment of the cross, right? We're on the other side of the cross, which offers everyone a path to having a relationship with God. And when Jesus had made his sacrifice on the cross and paid the price for our sins, he didn't stop there. He rose from the dead, and then he brought us his Holy Spirit, which was another pivotal moment. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just even say there was probably one more we could put between the cross and the Holy Spirit, and that would be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The pivotal moment. Let's see, where am I at here? Yeah. John 20, 21 through 22. Let's look at that scripture. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, 
he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. This scripture happens after Jesus rose from the dead and was meeting with his disciples. Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you, just as the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. I believe with all my heart that when Jesus says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, that you receive the Holy Spirit. I just think Jesus is that way. I think if he's the word of God, it happens. When Jesus speaks, it happens, right? I believe that. So they receive the Holy Spirit in that moment. And I believe that this is what is often referred to as the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is indwelling. When we accept and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he deposits his Holy Spirit within us. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit of Christ living on the, in, on the inside of us. Throw up that diagram again, if you would. Creation had a, the people had a relationship with God that was so perfect and so wonderful. The fall of man happened, it wrecked that. The cross happened, paid the price for our sin, and then if we chose to accept that message of the cross, because I think there has to be an acceptance, right? Can't just be he died so it's good for everybody, but there's an acceptance there. When we do that, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives at that moment. That's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You see how God deals differently with his people throughout pivotal moments. The people that lived between the fall of man and the cross did not have what we have today. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And what does that really mean? I mean, big deal, it's, it's, it's a phrase we use, but what, what does that mean? Well, <clears throat> I'm glad you asked. We're going to get to that. God the Son, Jesus, had already taught his followers that this was going to happen. That when he rose from the dead, he was going to uh, breathe on them or he was going to give them uh, the Holy Spirit. And so in John 16, 7 through 11, we see him talking about this. This is prior to him doing this with his disciples but he says but I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I am leaving for if I do not leave the helper will not come to you the helper that's the Holy Spirit by the way that word in the Greek because the New Testament was originally written in the Greek we, we the word is paraclete say paraclete paraclete means helper or advocate okay so we have the helper if I don't leave the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And, and he, when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, notice it's a capital H, he, it's God. And he, when he comes, will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. So he will come into you when you get saved. That's why I say you can't be convicted enough to accept Jesus Christ if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit coming into you. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that happens when you accept Jesus Christ. And it's, it's so interesting to me because there's parallels between what goes on in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When I think of him wooing Adam and Eve back into relationship or wooing them back to him. Because if you know the story of Adam and Eve, what did he do? They, they, were, they felt guilty, they felt, they felt shame, and, and, and God made animal skin covers for them. First blood sacrifice blood atones for sin he made a sacrifice for them to cover their shame their nakedness he was wooing them back and giving us a picture at the same time of what he was going to do with his son 
who would be the ultimate blood sacrifice. We get to live on this side of the cross. Hallelujah. That's awesome. And not only do we get to live on this side of the cross, he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's our paraclete, our helper, our advocate. And again, this is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us, the deposit that Jesus makes into our lives when we accept him as Savior. So let me make a point here. Before the cross, mankind can have limited relationship with God. They would experience the manifest presence of his Holy Spirit at times. They would see visually that he was in their midst, and, and, and it was clear to the visible eye. We also read in the Old Testament that the Spirit would come upon people. He would anoint them as if to give them power in the moment, carry out tasks that God wanted them to carry out. And the Spirit came on Samson. The Spirit came upon Saul. The the Spirit came mightily upon David, and you see this phrase over and over throughout the Old Testament. And the word Spirit is again from the word, it is the word Ruach, all through the Old Testament. This is the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. He came upon them. And the pivotal moment of the cross and Jesus' resurrection and his breathing on his disciples saying, receive ye the Holy Spirit, was different than the Old Testament accounts of the Spirit coming on them. He was no longer just merely coming upon those he was using. He was now being deposited inside every person that called upon the name of Jesus. And why is that important? Because you have the spirit of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit, living on the inside of you. And if you understand that, it changes the way you live. He leads you into all truth. He is our helper. He is our advocate. It's built into us when we accept Christ. He's indwelling in there, and we can rely on him in every situation. When fear comes upon us for whatever reason, we can rely on the Holy Spirit to help us get rid of that fear. When we don't know what to do in a certain situation, we don't know what decision to make, and, and it's, it just seems like, uh, you know... It, no matter what, we're gonna get, we're gonna get to make the wrong decision. That's when we go to our knees in prayer and we ask through our helper, our advocate, he's right there to whisper in our ear, to, to, to whisper, and I say that, but I don't mean physically, oh, oh. I mean within us, speaking to us in the inside. Have you ever just sat and listened to God? He'll speak to you. He'll speak to you. He'll tell you what to do. He'll lead you, guide you. He guides us into all truth. In the Old Testament, he was no longer, or, I mean, in the, he, he was no longer, at, when, when the Spirit comes inside of us, he's no longer just merely coming upon those like he did in the Old Testament. He was now being deposited into every person that called upon the name of Jesus. And those two things are completely different. So we don't say that the Holy Spirit indwelled the Old Testament believers, because he didn't. He came upon them. But because we are on this side of the pivotal moment of the cross, we get more than that. We're a part of something greater than that. And I love it. When, I mean, when you see that the Spirit of God comes on a guy like David, and he takes out, you know, the Goliath, or, or when he kills a bear with his bare hands, I mean, or a lion, or whatever, I... I'm like, I, I, I want that. <laughs> I want to I rip apart a lion or, or a wild animal with my bare hands, you know? That would be cool. 
But God has given us something so much more than that because it's on the inside of us. And we have to consider the day of Pentecost. So important. It's another pitiful little moment in time. And this is when God poured out his spirit in a way that literally baptized them in the third person of the Trinity. This was a baptism of power, not just the indwelling of the spirit, but a baptism into the spirit. I'm choosing my words carefully. I hope you're listening. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria as far as the remotest part of the earth. So someone who is baptized and immersed in the Holy Spirit has always, has always already been indwelt by the Holy Spirit because you don't get baptized in the Spirit until you get saved. And when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. Am I boring you? You understand what I'm saying? You following me along? In faith, turn to your neighbor and say, this is good stuff. <laughs> and it gets confusing, I know. But it doesn't have to be. God poured his spirit out in a way that literally baptized them in the third person of the Trinity. It was not just indwelling in anymore, it was something more than that. It was baptism in, or indwelling of, but baptism in. Our word baptism is from the Greek word baptisma, which literally means to dip. Again, this is different than indwelling. This is the baptism in, and it is the baptism in, it is a baptism in power. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That sounds more like Old Testament, doesn't it? It's interesting how there's parallels and different phrases are used and we can mash it all up and sometimes get it wrong and sometimes it's not wrong. Someone who has the indwelling of, uh, or, of the Holy Spirit has not necessarily experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Every person that calls upon the name of Jesus has the indwelling. But that doesn't mean they have the baptism in. By the way, that doesn't make anybody who has the baptism better than the person who just has the indwelling. Okay? It's a free gift to everybody, so if you chose the gift and they didn't, it doesn't make you better. It just means you're tapping into some power that they aren't. And for whatever reason they aren't, we don't know. But, but that's not something you shame them with or that you, you think you're better than they are or some kind of elitist. Because you didn't do anything to deserve that, right? I mean, oh, no, we didn't deserve anything. When believers talk about these things, and I'm guilty of this too, we, we all probably are, we often speak without regard to making the proper distinctions in reference to the aspects of the Holy Spirit that we are talking about. And honestly, most believers don't want to take the time to study this out, or they just don't care to be that detailed with their words. Let me ask you this. If someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's a rhetorical question, but if someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit, would it be wrong to describe their experience as the Spirit coming upon them, in, like in the Old Testament? They are being immersed in the Spirit. That is what the baptism of the Spirit is. It's an immersion. It's a dipping. But if they say, the Holy Spirit came upon me last night, and, and it, it felt like power was running through my veins, and I went out and I witnessed and led a bunch of people to Jesus, I think that's fine. Yes, they were baptized. Yes, because baptism in the Spirit is not just a one-time thing, by the way. 
I just love Pentecostals who think that's the case. Most of them would never tell you they think that, they just believe it, or they act like they believe that. Well, I was baptized in the Spirit and speaking in tongues back in 1965. Have you been baptized since? Because there's an element to that word if you get deep enough into the Word of God and you start looking at the original words, that it really implies be being filled in a consistent, constant way, like it never stops. So are, are, that should be a continual thing. If you want to say the Spirit came upon me or I was baptized in or immersed in, I think that's all okay. But here's, here's a distinction that we should make too. The phrase, I, and I'm, I'm going down a rabbit hole here. I hope you're following me. The presence of the Holy Spirit, that's a phrase we use. Most of us have said this, and we even sing songs about this. But what are we talking about when we say this? Are we, trying to, to, uh, are, are we referring to the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit? Was that just an Old Testament thing? Is the Holy Spirit's presence geographical? Or is it merely indwelt? Does the fact that he's omnipresent play into this? These are all questions you start asking. Have you ever studied the word of God like that? And just start asking questions? It's a good thing. It'll drive you deeper into the word. I believe the fact that he's omnipresent is more of a general term of God's presence. I can't prove the following statement, but when I think about the omnipresence of God, it seems easy to attach his omnipresence to the, uh, that attribute about him to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He's everywhere all the time. Nothing happens that is outside of his sight. He sees all. He's omnipresent. He's God. He's omnipresent. But what about his hovering presence in Genesis like we talked about last week? Does he still do that on this side of the cross? Again, getting back to that diagram. Does he do it on this side? Does he deal with his people differently? Does he hover over us? The Spirit came down and settled on Jesus during his water baptism. That was during, just before the cross. The Holy Spirit in Acts 2.4 was tangibly present. They heard the wind. They saw the cloven tongues of fire resting over each one. That might be one of the best examples. This, of course, happened after the cross and after Jesus had deposited his Holy Spirit in his disciples. So they, they were saved. They had the indwelling, and now the baptism happens. Acts 2.1.4, let me read it. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each one little flame, one little tongue of flame, you know, one little flame. And those tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. This was the baptism into the Holy Spirit. And every revival you hear about usually has talk of the manifest presence of God. We just said earlier, and I'm going to tie this together, uh, that the manifest presence of God was about seeing it, and they saw it, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. But do we see that now today? Because we talk, people talk about it. I've talked about it. Is that right? The manifest presence of God. Do we see that today? Is it geographical? You're like, give us the answer. No, dig it out of the word of God. People use all sorts of adjectives to describe. Some are okay, some maybe aren't. This, every revival you hear about talks about the manifest presence of God, the presence of God visible with the eyes. Why do they say this? Do they really see the physical presence with their eyes? We shouldn't forget that the day of Pentecost was 
a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Just going to take you down the trip I went down. Joel 2, 28, 29, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions with the eye, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Notice it says that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Also, when he says that, they will see visions. Are they really seeing something? When you get a vision from God, do you really see something physical or don't you? you well, I see it spiritually. Do you? <laughs> Am I confusing you? I love questions like this. I, they, don't, they don't make me have a lack of faith. They drive me deeper into the word. This is why we get into the Bible and we study and we study and we study. You get into a study like this and you, you almost can't stop. My wife knows this. I sometimes don't come out of the office for many, 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 many hours when I'm at home. Did they really see something when they see a vision? And I'm not going to say that they don't experience the manifest presence in those instances. It would be like trying to answer whether or not a vision from God is physical or spiritually seen. It's a vision in the spiritual realm, but in those moments where the physical realm gives way to the spiritual realm, I believe there can be the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and even a geographical, geographical presence of the Holy Spirit, spiritually speaking, a manifest presence of God, the Spirit. How do you want to describe that? I'll tell you. Carefully. Carefully. Simon the sorcerer saw that the gift of the Spirit was given when Peter and John laid their hands on people. What did he see? Was that the manifest presence of God? When Stephen was being stoned to death for preaching the gospel, he looked up and he said, Behold, I see heavens opened. I see the heavens opened, and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Was that God's manifest presence? I believe it was. He saw Jesus physically. Was it a vision? I don't know. We're going to go to heaven someday, and we're going to get to ask him. And that'll be awesome. And again, let's not nitpick under confusion. Maybe I'm doing that a little bit. But let's be very careful that we don't give confusing information and throw out words, or throw words around in the church, or especially when we're talking to people that are less mature in their faith or that are unbelievers. Uh, let's not throw around words that we can't back up. Pentecostals are very good at feeling everything. But backing up with Scripture, they're not so good at sometimes. Pentecostal churches love, I mean, we attract people that, that, that trust their emotions more than they trust the Word of God. I'm not saying everybody like that is in here is like that. But that's just a fact, isn't it? Now, on the other side of that, you can't take emotions out of our relationship with God. He gave us emotions so we could get to know Him better. So you don't throw emotions out, but you don't base everything off emotions. You don't base everything off your senses, what you feel. Balance. Balance. So important. Also, when it comes to the manifest presence of God, is it that people who are truly experiencing him and his presence are just being made aware of him? because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? Could be. And his work in their life? Or are they sensing him? Or maybe just seeing the effects of him? If you being baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, 
are being immersed into that which is already inside of you. Or is that how baptism works? He lives inside of you, so you're baptized into what's inside of you. I, I think there's a presence outside that you're baptized into. Just, just my thoughts. I think it's interesting. It's fun stuff to jump into and talk about. All of these are great questions, and you know that. I, I, I don't have to answer all these. If, if anything, we need to remember to walk in balance and know that we can't base the verbiage we use to describe the Holy Spirit off the experiences that we've had with him. Okay. I, I want to make a statement. I want you to write this down. Take a picture of the screen when she puts it up. We should define our experiences through the eyes of Scripture, not define Scripture through the eyes of our experience. Do you understand what that means? We should define our experiences through the eyes of Scripture, not define Scripture through the eyes of our experience. Scripture isn't true because you've experienced it. It's a testimony that it's true, but it's not true because you experienced it. It's true because it's true. Right? And your experience comes later. Your experience has to line up to Scripture. There's plenty of people who take their, take their Bible and they try to line it up with their experience. And I think that's a great question to ask yourself. Do we ever do that? I think probably all of us have at times. Let this be a little reminder as we get into this discussion of the Holy Spirit. And, and they're not all going to be like this. I just wanted to get this sermon out of the way so I could, because this, this is not easy. This is not a normal sermon. But there's a lot of questions some of which we can't answer, and that's okay. There's a lot of thought, but I think we have to be careful and always make sure that our experiences line up with Scripture, not Scripture lining up with our experience. And at the same time, experiencing God and His Holy Spirit through all of our senses, and I've already said this, and even our emotions, they're a big part of our relationship with Him. That's why we say as Pentecostals, we're people of the presence. We love His presence, whether it's in us, baptized into it, around us, whatever you want to say. I don't know if you can really distinguish what someone means when they say those things, but we experience him through our senses and our, even our emotions. And these, these types of questions, they should, again, drive us to the word of God, drive us to the word of God. They should make us want to meditate on it and dig and pray and ask God to lead us into all truth. After all, that's what he promised uh, us when he gave us the Holy Spirit in the first place, to lead us into all truth. And won't it be fun in heaven? I, I Obviously, when we can all have the answers to these things. I want to refer back to the diagram and just let me recap real quick. Oh, it's 1130. Wow, I talked a long time today. I didn't. My wife's not even going like this. Oh, she is. Okay, okay. <laughs> Are you with me? Look at the diagram. God the Father and how he related to man was the primary focus of the Old Testament. Even the Spirit was at work at, during this time. But then you have God the Son, Jesus Christ. When he, when he came on the scene, it was most certainly a pivotal moment. The Son is emphasized in the four Gospels in his relationship with man and how his birth, his ministry, his sacrificial atoning death on the cross, his raising up from the dead and his ascension into heaven, all of this has certainly affected the way that we relate with him and he with us. All of it. The cross is unequivocally the most pivotal moment of all history. It brought back once again the opportunity and the path for mankind to have fellowship and communion with God. And then you have the pivotal moment in history 
when Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit, first the indwelling when we get saved. He died, rose again, and gave us his indwelling Holy Spirit, and he gave that to every person that believes upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he took it a step further when he gave us the outpouring on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where believers were baptized, dipped, and immersed into his Holy Spirit. This was the day that the church was empowered to fulfill her purpose. And I say her because as the church, we are the bride of Christ, and brides are female. Grooms are male, I guess, yeah. (laughs) Through all these pivotal moments, though, there have been changes in how God deals with his people. For us today, we are living in some of the most exciting times you could ever live, church. I'm telling you, you can, you can be nervous and scared and watch the news too much. I'm excited. I believe that God is raising up a church that is going to be full of his spirit, a church that will not cower in the corner, a church that, that, that walks in the power of the Holy Spirit, a church that is baptized into the Holy Spirit, a church that is willing to be a part of the last great revival before Jesus comes back, and I think there's going to be a great revival. I believe that. I believe in the latter reign of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit pours out and people are going to get saved. You know, but it, things have got to get bad before people give up on their old ways. And if that means we got to go through some bad stuff so we can win some more, I'm, sign me up. Because what's really important is souls, right? The Holy Spirit gives us all that. Well, I hope I didn't give you more questions than answers today. More than anything else, though, I hope you will dive into the word of God and you won't flippantly speak about these things. The Holy Spirit. That you would think about, hmm. You'd, you'd be able to give a good account, a good witness for what he is and what he does in our lives. And we're gonna jump back into things next week a little more uh, methodically as far as the Holy Spirit, but this, I think, gives some framework for what we're gonna be talking about in the future. Thank you for being here. We love you. We're so thankful that you joined us online. And uh, God bless you, and we will, uh, let, let's just close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you so much that you um, are an everlasting God, that you have never left us, you never forsake us. Lord, we, we give you our hearts today, we give you our lives, and Lord, we open ourselves up to the moving of your spirit. We know that we have the spirit indwelt within us when we got saved, but God, baptize us over and over and over again, God. We want to be like, like, tools in your hand that you use for the harvest God we empty ourselves of self and we say fill us up with your Holy Spirit baptize us in submerse us in have the Holy Spirit come upon us as we carry that presence that's within us and around us Lord I pray that we would carry his even his manifest presence where it's visible to people maybe not like a cloud of fire or a cloud of pillar or, uh, but, but Lord I, like like it just changes the atmosphere because one of your people is present and we're full of the Holy Spirit. God, we love you today and I pray you would just pour out your spirit on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.